Turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. There's a song that we'll be learning over the next several weeks called In This Rebel World. It's a song that speaks of the apparent power of the gods of this world and that they have this, they seem to have a hold on us. But then the song moves to remind us of passages like Isaiah chapter 40 and 41 that tell us that, that for God, all the nations are dust upon the scales. That they are no match for God. As powerful as they seem, they pale in comparison to God's power. And He ultimately can remove them as quickly as He can remove dust from a scale. And therefore, we should not fear these nations. We should not fear man for what they can do to us. Instead, we should look to Jesus, the conqueror. That's how the song concludes. A few weeks ago, we looked at the first part of Daniel 2, and we saw that King Nebuchadnezzar received direct revelation from God by way of a dream. And because he received this dream, it concerned him. It concerned him because he determined that it was about his future. This big statue was taken down and destroyed. And so he wanted to know the meaning of it. So he called for his wisest of men to tell him the dream and also to interpret it. And they were happy to interpret it for him, but he would first have to tell them what the dream was. And it proved to him that they had no ability to interpret his dream. In fact, they didn't know anything about his dream if they could not tell it to him. And so King Nebuchadnezzar sentenced them all and all the other wise men who were not there to death because he saw them all as frauds. But when Daniel found out that he was going to be killed along with the rest of the wise men, even though he didn't know what was going on, he sought for some time with the king. If He asked the official, if you'll just give me some more time. Well, the king agrees, and Daniel and his three friends spent the night in prayer. And God answered by revealing the dream to Daniel, and, his, and, and also He revealed the interpretation of the dream. And so last time we saw that Daniel praised God for revealing this mystery to him. And now we'll see that Daniel actually reveals the interpretation to King Nebuchadnezzar. And its meaning has importance for King Nebuchadnezzar. It has meaning for us as well. And so I'm going to begin reading in verse 31 of Daniel chapter 2. This is the Word of God. This is Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and gold, they were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, 
or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky. He has given them into your hand and has caused you, caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will rise another kingdom inferior to you, then another, uh, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. God alone is powerful to overcome the strongest of kings and kingdoms. God alone is powerful to overcome the strongest of kings and kingdoms. Here, Daniel takes the dream one step further. He, last week we, or last, two weeks ago, we saw that Daniel knew what the dream was. Now he's going to tell king, the king what the dream was and the interpretation of the dream. And so, in verse 36, which is really the beginning of what we're going to look at this morning, we see the interpretation of the dream. And there are five main parts to the statue made of five different substances. Okay, can, can we get those last two light, light switches on the right turned off? Thank you. There are five main parts to the statue made of five different substances. First, you see at the top the head of gold. And we saw that in, in um, verse 32. And also, uh, we see it again in verse 38, the head of gold. Then you see the chest and arms of silver, the stomach and thigh of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet of iron and clay. And so we're going to work through each one of these and what they represent uh, based on what Daniel tells us and then based on some other passages that we see in Scripture. So first, the head of gold. The head of gold, verses 36 through 38. This head of gold, according to God, as He tells it to Daniel, and as Daniel tells it to the king, 
is King Nebuchadnezzar. Look at the end of verse 38. You are the head of gold. He says in verse 37, You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And, and this is not flattery on the part of Daniel. You know, I really want to butter up this king so that he really likes me. No, he's telling king, the king the interpretation that God had given him. And what God is telling to the King Nebuchadnezzar is that you are the king of kings. But what I want you to notice is that the, the word king is a lowercase k. It begins with a lowercase k. Verse 37 again. You, O king, are the lowercase k, king of kings. Okay, So don't think okay, he's the king of all kings and of all time. King Nebuchadnezzar is the greatest. Of course, we know that the capital K, king of kings, is whom? It is Jesus, right? He will come in Revelation 19 and He has on His robe, king of kings, down His thigh. It's, it's red, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But, but for this time period, what what we're being told by God through Daniel is that Nebuchadnezzar is the greatest of all kings. He is the greatest king in the entire world. That there is none like King Nebuchadnezzar. He is the king to whom all the other kings bow. And this shows the scope of his rule. During this time, we know from history that he ruled from Egypt all the way to the Persian Gulf. And so this was a vast empire called the Babylonian Empire and it would last for some 85 years. But his rule was not only wide. Notice verse 38. It was also deep. And wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, He has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. So not only is He the King over all the kings in the world, He also, wherever He goes, even down to the birds, they submit to Him. That He has authority in that way. That's I think an embellishment but or maybe a metaphor for how much authority He has. To what degree is His power? Well, it spreads really far and it also spreads very deep. That's King Nebuchadnezzar's rule. The second part of the statue, you see there is the chest of arms and uh, the chest and arms made of silver in verse 39. So after King Nebuchadnezzar says, there will arise, verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you. So just as silver is inferior to gold, uh, so this next kingdom will be inferior to the Babylonian kingdom. Now, not inferior in scope, because in fact, the next kingdom that we're going to, uh, that I think that this represents is the one that follows Babylonian kingdom, which is, if you think about the story of Daniel, who was the next king after King Nebuchadnezzar who, who ruled over him? It was King Cyrus. Remember Cyrus and uh, actually through Darius. Remember Darius was the one who, who made this decree. The, by the law of the Medes and the Persians, you cannot pray to any other god, to any god, really. And then Daniel keeps his window open, prays. And so I think this next kingdom is the Medo-Persian kingdom or Medo-Persian empire. And their, their kingdom would actually be pretty far spread. Um, but the idea is that it's inferior according to verse 39, to the Babylonian kingdom because of its morality. The people in the Medo-Persian um, kingdom were, were, uh, were, were much looser when it came to the ordinances of God. Now, certainly the kingdom of Babylon was not perfect by any means, but if you think about it, at the end of this story, who becomes the king's chief advisor? 
right? And, and his near, the, the people who are over his near court, the principal administrators, are three young godly men. So you have Daniel and the three friends are, are the ones who are essentially leading this com- country, this, this empire. And so the, the Medo-Persian Empire was not like that by any means. And so while the Babylonian Empire was not to be admired and that you know we need to model ourselves after it, they certainly did have some godly influence and can be commended for that. It gets worse as it goes down. The Babylonian Empire lasted uh, for, like I said, 80-some years but it only lasted 23 years after King Nebuchadnezzar died. It shows you how much power King Nebuchadnezzar had that, that as he passed on from the scene, it was only a matter of time before his empire was destroyed. And that's when the Medo-Persians came in through the, the King Cyrus in 539 B.C. and their kingdom would last for nine years. So we have the Babylonian Empire, the head of gold. We have the chest and arms of silver, which is the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the next empire that would follow would be the stomachs and thighs of bronze. This would be far after the time of Daniel. And many scholars, and I I hold this as well, believe that this is the Greek empire established uh, by Alexander the Great in the 4th century B.C. At the age of 20, he became king of his country. And then for the next 10 years, he conquered Asia Minor and then Northeast Africa in some of the most impressive battles in human history. And this man led his country to undefeated, to an undefeated record in battle. And as a result, he would be the ruler of another great empire, and it was Alexander the Great. And that, that rule lasted long after his death, that his empire had spread so far and had such uh, influence that, his, um, that even after he died, this kingdom, this empire continued. Uh, the, the Greek Empire was established in 331 B.C. and lasted all the way until the time of Pompey, uh, the Roman military leader who took over in 63 B.C. And that leads us to the fourth one in verse 40. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron and as much as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. This next empire that took over after the Greek Empire is the Roman Empire. With the fall of the Greek Empire, you have the rise of the Roman Empire, which would span for 500 years, all the way till 476 B.C., long after the time of the Apostles even. And this kingdom was known as iron. It was as strong as iron. And if you think about the Roman Empire, it is one of power and one that, that, that takes no prisoners. And we see that at the end of verse 40. So you have these four primary kingdoms and then you have a fifth that really is just a restoration of the fourth one. And you see that in verses 41 through 43. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom. And so now we have this this fifth kingdom, so to speak, that's that's described by the, the feet and the toes which are made of iron and clay, which don't mix but they're going to be together. They kind of mix, but they're not. They, they don't mix. And if we were to read on through the verses, it shows how that works. And, and Daniel draws our attention to the feet and the toes. And what we should notice is that between the fourth kingdom, the kingdom of the Roman Empire, in verse 40, we have a gap in verse 41. We have a gap in time. 
And I know that because the kingdom that's described here in verses 41 through 43 is a kingdom that will be displaced by, notice verse 44, which kingdom? In the days of those kings, speaking of the kings that are represented by the ten toes of this final kingdom, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Whose kingdom is that? It's Christ's kingdom, right? So that what that tells us is that the kingdom that Christ will displace is the kingdom that's going to be in verses 41 through 43. Okay, this, this kingdom that's described by feet of, and toes of iron and clay is going to be displaced by Christ. How? Remember, He's like this stone cut out of a rock and it's thrown at the, these feet. The feet are crushed and the whole statue comes crashing down. It breaks into a million pieces and the wind takes it all away as if it's never, it had never been there. Why? Because this stone is going to grow up to the size of a mountain and fill the whole earth. What does that tell us? This is Christ's kingdom, right? It's going to take over everything. It's going to be like no other kingdom in human history. And so that's why I say that this fifth kingdom is actually a kingdom that will be there just before the kingdom of Christ. And what I believe that that um, that we're talking about here, the kingdom that we're talking about that is displaced by Christ is known as the kingdom of... In Revelation, it's called the kingdom of Babylon, right? Revelation 17 talks about Babylon, how quickly you are destroyed in one hour. Everything's gone. Your commerce, your power, your politics, it's all gone. Okay, so we could call it Babylon. I think that's a symbolic name. But if we want to think about it in historical terms, I think it's a resurrection of or a a restoration of this Roman Empire that had been destroyed in 476, A.D. 476. Uh, It is the kingdom of the Antichrist. It's the kingdom that that we could call, and and the reason I say it's a Roman Empire is because it has these ten toes, these ten kings are going to come together. They're going to join together in a federation of kings. And they're going to effectively rule the world. Now, one of those toes is more important than all the others, and that is the Antichrist. He's going to have rule over all of them. And uh, notice, let me just... Uh, I'm, I'm using a lot of symbolic language that I'm kind of just assuming that you know, but let me just show you from the text. Okay, Verse 42, As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. So... While it will be, in one sense, the greatest kingdom ever to be, uh, ever to exist, it also will be brittle. It will be quickly destroyed, and we know that because what happens at the end of the tribulation, right? The battle of Armageddon, where Christ destroys them very quickly. They're they're gone. Verse 43. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay. They will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not adhere with pottery. And so you have this kingdom that will be destroyed. This kingdom that that has some substance, some cohesion, but at the same time it has a bunch of, uh, of, of dissent and a, a bunch of uh, problems. Christ's kingdom will immediately follow that kingdom. This federation of kings during the time of the tribulation here they're described as ten toes, but in the in the book of Revelation they're described as ten what? Ten horns, right? Turn to Daniel chapter seven. Let me show you where that's at. Daniel chapter seven. Ten kings. 
are going to join together, unified together by the Antichrist. But it's going to be a kingdom that's a divided kingdom. And it's a brittle as baked clay type of kingdom. And these ten kings who are symbolized as ten toes in chapter 2 are symbolized in a different way in chapter 7. Look at verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. Okay, so here we have the Antichrist being described as a beast with ten horns. And these ten horns are what we see in the book of Revelation, these ten kings. So, so we could call the ten kings represented by the ten toes or the ten horns the restored empire of Rome during the time of tribulation. And of all the kingdoms that have ever existed up until that point during the, during the tribulation time, this final kingdom, this second to final kingdom, seems the most powerful and the most unquestionable, un, unquestionable when it comes to its scope of power. right? Because no one could buy or sell without, without having the mark of the beast with his ten horns. No one could buy or sell. They had to submit to him. They had to worship him. And if not, the result was, the sentence was, death. But if you think about it, even the greatest of kingdoms ever to exist only lasts for how many years? only lasts for seven years. Right? The tri- time of the tribulation. Really, three and a half are its, its strength. The first three and a half are where the Antichrist rises to power. He gets at the, the, the height of his power at the midpoint. And then, and then the, the kingdom lasts for only three and a half more years. And then what happens? Turn back to chapter 2 of Daniel. And what happens is the stone cut out of the mountain without hands comes and destroys this final kingdom, this final earthly, human, ungodly kingdom. In chapter 2, you see this in verse 44. Then King Nebuchadnezzar... Uh, sorry, verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. And as much as you saw that stone was cut out of the mountains without hands, and that it crushed the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Notice the end of verse 35. The stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Friends, that is the the kingdom that we will be a part of. That is Christ's kingdom. What is God going to do to the nations who reject Him, who time after time raise their fists at Him and say, no, you do not exist. You are not the greatest. We will reign. We will rule as we please. What will God do to them? Turn to Psalm number 2. Psalm number 2. Because this has been going on for ages. That people have been defying God as the King. You know, God sits in heaven and He laughs at their power. It is of no strength to Him. Psalm 2, the rest- uh, what we're going to see at the end of the tribulation is that this restored 
Roman Empire will be at its pinnacle. It will control politics, religion, and commerce in the entire world. Every pocket of the world will be covered except for one where there will be at least 144,000 who have rejected His rule. And so what is God to do? What is God to do with the nations who defy Him? Look at Psalm number 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, and I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Many of these verses you should hear in many of those phrases uh, ringing other passages in your mind. Because a lot of these passages are, are quoted in the New Testament to describe our Lord. That God says to Him, Today you are My Son. I have begotten you. And I will give you the earth. Right? I have established My King on the holy mountain. Speaking of when Christ will establish His kingdom. And then, verse 9, you will rule with a rod of iron. This is Christ during the time of the millennial kingdom. The judgment will be swift for those who oppose Him. That's the way that our Christ will rule. Is God concerned about the nations? Is God concerned with their power and that they somehow might rage against Him and, and overpower Him? Even the greatest of human governments cannot stand against God. God is in the heavens and He laughs. He scoffs at them and says, I, you know how I know that I'm going to win? Because I've established my son as king. And he will rule with a rod of iron. He's going to destroy all these. The stone that is my son will come and crush this great kingdom at its feet. And the whole of all kingdoms will come crashing down. And they will be forever wiped away. And Christ, Christ's reign will fill the whole earth. Turn back to Daniel and look at verse 37 because I want you to see this in this passage because we can think the kingdoms of this world are very powerful and the kingdoms of this world should be feared. But notice who gives them their kingdoms. Verse 37, You, O king, Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar, are the king of kings. And then notice this next phrase, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. Nebuchadnezzar, where do you get your power, your strength, your glory, your kingdom? Who gives it to you? Daniel's saying, it doesn't come from you. It wasn't your ingenuity and your power and your great ability. It was God. King Nebuchadnezzar, a believer at this point? No. What does that tell us about what God does for even the worst, the most evil of human kingdoms? Who gives them their power? God is the one who grants them their power. All power is derived from God. You see, God raises up kings and He sets them and then He puts them away. 
It's God who gives them the power. God gives them the power. God is the one who gives them their authority. Verse 39, who predicts the Medo-Persian and the Greek empires to rule? It is God. How can He predict those things? Because He's planned them all. God's planned all these. These are not surprises to Him. And somehow these, these human empires have raised up and I didn't even realize it. What am I going to do to destroy them? No, He knows that they're going to come into existence because He planned them all. Our God is in the heaven and He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. God can predict the rise and the fall of empires because He has planned it. He has planned the rise and the fall and the restoration of the Roman Empire. And so these kings and kingdoms are great. And sometimes for decades and centuries they are great. But they are no match for God. They are dust on the scales. Aren't you thankful for that? Revelation 19 talks about Jesus coming swiftly. You know how He destroys all this huge kingdom that has basically filled the earth. They, they've come to the valley of Megiddo and they all gather to, to, to make war against Christ and, and His subjects, His followers. Because this is the last pocket of resistance. And if they can just get this last pocket of resistance to submit to their rule, the Antichrist rule, and they will, have had, they will have covered the entire earth. They all come to do battle. You know how Jesus destroys them all? By the words from His mouth. The kingdoms, even the greatest kingdom ever to exist or to ever to exist, that kingdom will be no match for Jesus. He will simply destroy them very quickly with the word of His mouth. And there will be so much blood that from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea, 200 miles, up to the horse's bridle, there will be a river of blood. And the birds will feast like never before on that day. And that's because our King is the greatest of kings. And He will prove it at the Battle of Armageddon. He is the true King of kings. He is the capital K, King of kings. Several things that we can note about this kingdom that it is established by God. That this kingdom of Christ is also established by God, but it is an eternal kingdom, right? It is one that lasts forever. We should also notice that it is an earthly kingdom. You notice that it's listed with all these other five kingdoms, that all of these kingdoms here are listed alongside of this other kingdom. So Jesus' kingdom will be earthly, but it will last forever because. The, the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, will lead into the eternal kingdom or the eternal state where Jesus will rule forever. The other thing that we should notice about this kingdom is that it is, it is still future for us. Christ does not currently reign on this earth as king. He does not rule on David's throne at Mount Zion right now. But He will in the millennial kingdom. Still future for us. Something that we look forward to. The rise of His kingdom will be swift and powerful. Many of these kingdoms that, that we've been looking at this morning, they take a long time to rise for, for them to rise to power. It takes a series of victories and a series of negotiations and so on in order for them to get to a place where they rule in a great way, but not for Christ. It will be in an instant that He will be King. 
And it will be a universal kingdom. Verse 35 says that that stone will fill the earth. Christ will be triumphant and His rule will be eternal. In verses 46-49, through we have the king's response to the interpretation. So Daniel says, here's what's going to happen, king. You are the head of gold. Your kingdom is that head of gold. But there's going to come another kingdom after you. And then another one. And another one. And then there's going to be a divided kingdom. And then the stone's going to come and crush it. And here's how the king responds. First, he bows to his captor. Verse 46. The king bows to his captor. He he fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering of fragrant incense. This is remarkable that a king of this power would bow to someone who is his captor. Remember? Daniel is part of Judah who has been taken away, or Israel, and has been taken away from their land, brought to Babylon, and being trained to be like a Babylonian. He is a captor. And now we see King Nebuchadnezzar saying, Wow! How great of a man you are. Now, he wasn't exalting him. Daniel, notice, doesn't reject this homage because he recognizes that his that he's ultimately recognizing God for his power. Notice we see that in verse 47. Surely your God is, the, is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Now, here, King Nebuchadnezzar speaks very highly of Daniel's God, but he doesn't come to the point of submitting to him. And we know that because what's the next chapter? Chapter 3. That was a really easy question. Next chapter is chapter 3. Chapter 3 is about what? Right? The golden statue. This 90-foot statue that, that all, of the, all of his subjects are supposed to bow down to. And so we know King Nebuchadnezzar hasn't submitted himself to, Christ, to, to God yet and God's future Redeemer. But he will. And that'll come in chapter four, and you'll have to wait till we get there, see what happens. In verses forty-eight through forty-nine, the king follows through on his promise. Remember, in verse six, he said, "Listen, if anyone can reveal this dream and this mystery, the interpretation, I'm going to give to him many gifts and great honor." And you know what he does? He follows through on that. In verse forty-eight, he makes Daniel uh, second in command in Babylon, similar to Joseph in Egypt. It's amazing, and he would take one of his captors and raise him up to second in command in Babylon. And Daniel, by this time, is not even 20 years old. Daniel, then, his first act in office, so to speak, verse 49, he appoints his three friends to be administrators over the province of Babylon. And so you have some godly rulers that are working underneath uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. So let's think about several things as we conclude this morning. First, no kingdom in our lifetime or history will last forever. You know, the kingdoms of this world seem very powerful, but no matter how powerful or no matter how evil that these kingdoms and these governments become or how corrupt the world leaders become, we know that at least two things. No current leader holds a candle to the corruption that will come in the final leader, that is, the Antichrist, final earthly leader, the Antichrist. These rulers that we have are bad in some cases, but but they hold they don't even hold a candle to how bad the Antichrist will be. And then the second thing we know is that no current leader will last forever. All of these kingdoms, okay, as represented by this these various parts of the statue, they all are destroyed. That's why the statue falls down. It's representative of all the human kingdoms that ever exist. 
they will be like dust on the scales to God. No current leader will last forever. His kingdom may last for decades or centuries and the effects of his kingdom may last for a long time, but eventually the kingdom will fall just like all the rest. Secondly, only the kingdom of Christ will last forever. Jesus is this stone that God showed to King Nebuchadnezzar. He is the stone. He's cut out without hands. That's the idea of a supernatural source. That He's not like the rest that are kind of crafted together. No, He's a stone that's cut out without human hands and He is thrown at the the base of this statue. He is the one who will bring final destruction on this restored Roman Empire led by the Antichrist. And He is the one whose kingdom will spread to the whole earth and I know that's the case because Luke 20, verses 17 and 18 describes the, the, uh, what's going on in chapter 2 of Daniel, verses 44 and 45. If you want to look up those verses sometimes, it would be helpful to kind of tie these together. Luke 20, 17 and 18. So, by way of application, for whose kingdom are you living? For whose kingdom are you living? Are you working harder to restore the kingdom of the United States even though it it will eventually fall like all the rest? Or are you working toward building the future kingdom of Christ that will never be destroyed? It will have no end. You see, we are on the right side. We are on the winning side. And so we need to keep things in perspective. Yes, it may feel like the world is uh, crashing in all around us and we're being crushed into its mold. But we serve the King of Kings. So I would encourage you, don't be weary in well-doing. Don't be weary in well-doing. Maybe you are spending a lot of energy on the kingdom of Christ. Maybe you are proclaiming the gospel to the people that you know. Maybe you are working to see your, uh, your, your family conformed to the Scriptures. Maybe you are working to encourage people in the church, but at the same time you are deeply discouraged because while you're doing all those things, you also see the great corruption in the world and it feels like Satan is winning. If that's how you feel today, if that's how you are prone to feel at times, I would encourage you to fix your eyes on Jesus and fix your eyes on His future kingdom. And remember that we have read the last page of the Bible. We know how it's all going to end. So no effort that is made for the sake of God's glory in Christ's future kingdom is wasted. So don't be weary even when the world seems like it's winning. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. Revelation 11.15 Friends, our response to the coming kingdom of Christ should be one of praise. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar, in a veiled way, he bowed down in homage and said, your God is a God of gods. And so in a veiled way, although it wasn't complete, he, he acknowledged that God was the true God. God's going to eventually bring him to his knees. But our response, I think, should be much more fervent than that even. When we recognize God's wisdom and power and Christ's current and future rule, we ought to respond in praise. Here is how Handel describes our response in song. And He shall reign forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords. And do you know how the final 
line of that song goes, Hallelujah! 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 Friends, our Lord will reign forever and ever. Do you believe that? Hallelujah. Father, we are humbled to think that You would include us in Your Son's kingdom. We were much like King Nebuchadnezzar and many other kings of the ages who defied Your authority and and raged against Your power and Your demand for us to submit. So we deserve a place with many of them in hell because of our sin and our defiance of You. But for some reason, You chose to share with us the hope of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. Lord, we are confident in His universal rule and His future permanent rule on this earth. And Lord, we want to submit to Him now our hearts. We want to praise You for Your power over all things. And Lord, we want to confess that we haven't thought about You in in these terms. We think so temporally many times. And we, we are discouraged by the evil that seems to be winning all around us. And that's why we're so thankful for a passage like this that picks up our heads lifts up our heads and points our eyes toward the future and eternal reign of our Savior. We know how it all is going to end. And we are pleased to be a part of it. And Lord, until that time, help us to live in holiness, live in faith and faithfulness, and to to draw other other people into Your family by sharing the Gospel with them and seeing the Holy Spirit change their hearts. Lord, we want to be made more like You. We want to see things more clearly. Lord, keep our eyes fixed on You. May this not be just a time of emotional appeal where we think about the eternal things for this hour and then go away from here and forget about it. Live just like we have been frustrated and, and annoyed by the things of this world but to live this way every day with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, who endured the trials, that many of which we endure, and to despise the shame because uh, He recognized there was something greater, that there was a greater promise than what this life has to offer. And those promises come in the next life. Lord, give us strength to continue to stand and to run the race, we pray. May we stand firm. May our church be faithful to You. May You continue to strengthen us for our responsibilities to love You and to to grow in our knowledge of the Scriptures so that we can know You more and trust You better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.